Christchurch, New Malden, 15th November 2020. Tim Davis speaking on A Fresh Take on Ecclesiastes. At the start of this talk, I'd like you, if you can, to get a piece of paper and draw three circles on it with the circles inside of each other, like a target. And then I want you to list about 10 different things that are important to you, priorities, and then try and put them in the target circles with the most important at the centre and those less important in the outer circles. Now, if you've done this, what does it look like? What's, what's on your list of priorities in life? What's at the centre? Is it money, family, health, job, friendship, shelter, food, entertainment, leisure? Now, these are pretty much the things I'd expect to see on my list and many others. But I think I'd struggle trying to put them in some order of importance. It's as if there needs to be some perfect order, some way that one thing facilitates another, making it easier to enjoy life and lessen the worry of trying to keep so many things in check. I want to work hard so I can have a good job, so I can have money, so I can have a nice house, so I can have comfort for my family and I, but I need to make time for them and for myself and I must keep healthy and active and I must relax, I must treat myself, but I must overspend and I must keep working hard to keep my job so I can have the money I need to feel secure and round and round it goes and it's exhausting and at some point you might just well stop and ask yourself, what's the point of it all? I can't do all of this. What's the point? Over the course of our lives, we've probably asked that question hundreds of times. What's the point of me revising chemistry? I'm never going to be a chemist. What's the point of me practicing for my grade five piano exam? I'm never going to be a professional musician. What's the point in completing this job application, this long, complicated job application? Because I'm never going to get an interview. It's all meaningless. Have you ever thought any of those things or something like it? And when you do... Do you ever come up with the answer to the question, what's the point? Ecclesiastes, one of my favourite books in the Bible, is a book which deals with this very subject and the type of thoughts many of us struggle with. We don't know for sure when or by whom the book was written and parts of it are thought to be later additions or insertions. And it's also a book that can often be dismissed as being fairly depressing and heavy going. And yet the basic teaching behind it is fairly simple. If everything is meaningless, then what's the point? At the moment, many of us are faced with a new focus on these types of questions. Why bother exercising? I'm not going on holiday, am I? So I don't need to try and perfect a beach body. What's the point in making plans? You'll only end up disappointed when they have to be cancelled at the next lockdown. Is it even a life worth living on more than just a basic functional level right now? Now, if life is on hold, What's the point? Well, coronavirus aside, in our lives, we will often try to have as much fun as possible, learn as much as possible, earn as much as possible, do as much as possible. We're constantly bombarded by society telling us that our lives are not fulfilled unless we buy the latest beauty product or wear the latest fashions, visit the latest tourist hotspot before everyone else does, because tomorrow you could be hit by a bus and never have experienced it. And there's this cringeworthy, I feel, trend on social media to post pictures of yourself in some fancy location and apply a living my best life tag to it, as if your best life has to constantly involve a sun lounger, cocktail, swimming costume and 27 attempts to get the photo just right. 
But what if you try to do all that and you live to a ripe old age and look back on your life? Would you say, I'm glad I did all that? Would you perhaps think with some regret about all the things you didn't manage to accomplish? Maybe you might think, did I really need to do some of those things? Did they in fact distract me from something else, something more worthwhile? The author of Ecclesiastes, or the teacher as he's referred to, works these questions through and comes out with an answer at the end, but he starts out with a pretty bleak outlook. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. As we heard in our first reading, the teacher isn't exactly in a mood for uplifting and inspiring prose, and he continues in a consistent vein. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, uh, chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is like a seriously dismal, despondent, dejected, depressed gulf. Now, everything is meaningless. We come, we go, we will be forgotten about. Why bother with anything? It's meaningless. How on earth can Ecclesiastes have anything helpful to say to us today? Why is it something I think can give us a beneficial insight into life today? As you might be sensing, I have a somewhat dismissive and cynical approach to the manufactured lifestyle that so many people seem to feel the need to try and create and portray, and even more so towards those who use such ploys to get you to sell products in their pyramid schemes or multi-level marketing campaigns, as they're now known. Here I am on a yacht in Ibiza with my besties, drinking champagne, and you too could be like me if you just sell more of this generic eyeliner or dietary supplement to all your friends and family. Now, if anything, surely Ecclesiastes is simply going to make me grumpier, right? Well, let's go on the initial journey with the teacher. Simply stated, his message is this. Life is hard and then you die. Now, he was trying to find the meaning of life in wisdom, pleasure, work, wealth, status and relationships and has come up empty. For him, three factors render life meaningless. First of all, Death ultimately renders life meaningless. The teacher doesn't have any confidence in an afterlife. In chapter 12, he says that one grows old and dies. The dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This wisdom that he seeks may have limited value over folly, but death renders even wisdom meaningless. Secondly, injustice for him renders life meaningless. You know, if there is no afterlife, as he fears, then perhaps meaning might be found in rewards in this life for the godly, wise, righteous person. However, the teacher's experience leads him to conclude that life doesn't work like that. In chapter 7, he's seen both the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. 
And thirdly, man's inability to discern the proper time for him renders life meaningless. As the well-known poem beginning in Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 1 describes, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. But according to the teacher, even though God has made everything beautiful in its time, we still can't actually fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The teacher has looked for success in life, but finds it as an empty thing. He recognises the difference between the righteous and the wicked, but finds that they meet the same fate. And ultimately, who can know the will of God? But it's at this point that the teacher starts on the next step of his journey, that of beginning to move from relying on his own understanding to that of trying to seek God. In our lives, when we try to find meaning in life and answers to the questions that trouble us, we turn to services such as counselling and psychotherapy. And these can provide us with invaluable insights into our own lives and behaviour, making sense of what was previously confusing to us. I've recently been re-watching the uh, fantastic TV series The Sopranos, which is about a New Jersey mafia boss, Tony Soprano, who finds himself needing to go into therapy to treat his panic attacks. And whilst the show is not necessarily suitable for all tastes, it does provide some fascinating moments as the main protagonist struggles with the challenges of being forced to confront certain realities in his life, which, outside of his counsellor's meeting room, he can't even allow himself to admit the fear of looking weak within his criminal organisation. And as the series comes to a conclusion, Tony's own son is shown struggling with depression of his own, and in a poignant scene finds himself reading W.B. Yeats' often quoted poem, The Second Coming. Yeats began writing this poem in January 1919, in the wake of the end of the First World War and the Russian Revolution, and with political turmoil in his native island. In addition to this violent backdrop, the anxiety of the poem is concerned with the fear of modernism and modernity, the breakup of traditional family and societal structures, the loss of collective religious faith, and with it the collective sense of purpose, the feeling that the old rules no longer apply and there's nothing to replace them. After the Great War, people were so troubled by what they'd experienced that they wondered if anything so awful could happen again and were disillusioned about life. Of course, the 20th century history did turn more horrific after 1919, as the poem has seemed to forebode. Yeats in his poem suggests something like the Christian notion of a second coming is about to occur, but rather than earthly peace, it will bring terror. A century later, we can see the beast in the atomic bomb, the Holocaust, the regimes of Stalin and Mao, environmental destruction and so on. It's these most recent moments and experiences in our life that can influence our thoughts the most. So it's perhaps understandable if some of us are currently thinking, what's the point of it all? We can't know how much better or worse things may get. We can only view life through the lens of the experience of our own lives and that which we absorb from around us, but with the entirety of history as a backdrop. The key problem with Ecclesiastes is this tension that the teacher finds in the approach to life, 
As a believer, you know that life is meaningful, yet your examination of area after area of life is the opposite, that life is also meaningless. So the big question Ecclesiastes poses, therefore, is not just about the meaningfulness of work and activities, but about how you know life is meaningful and circumstances in which nothing seems to make sense. But as he starts to resolve this problem, the teacher realises that his primary method of knowing, based on his own experience, reason and observation, is not wisdom, but his own folly. And that real wisdom only comes from God. At the start of chapter 5, he urges the reader to approach the temple cautiously to listen to God's instruction. And it concludes with a similar instruction to fear God. The teaching is similar to that in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To know what makes life meaningful is to know God. To understand the meaning of life is to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. To know God as creator, saviour, lord, father, king. Life can have more purpose than we know. The teacher initially sees life as meaningless, a cycle of futility in which we are all trapped. And that perhaps resonates a bit with us all at the moment. But is it really all meaningless? The teacher acknowledges that all these things you are striving for are actually gifts from God. And it's like a revelation to him. And he begins to understand that actually there may be meaning to life after all. You see, instead of trying to pursue wealth to be richer and to have more possessions or work harder to get a better job and ultimately never be completely satisfied because you'll always want that little bit more. Instead of centering your life around these things, center it around God instead. Start to live the life God has given you. Start to enjoy the things God has provided you with. Yes, work hard but not to be the best you can be for yourself, but be the best you can be for God. Yes, go and see that amazing country you've never been to, but not so you can just tick it off a list, but so you can experience something incredible God has created. The lens through which we understand and live our lives contains one crucial difference to that of the teachers. Jesus. Paul's letter to the Romans is his exposition on God's covenant with humanity. Our predicament was of our own doing. We could do nothing to save ourselves, so God did something. Romans chapter 8 contains some wonderful moments of scripture, and verses 18 to 30 are perhaps the best response to the book of Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. But I wanted us to look at the first 17 verses today, because they are about living your best life. Life through the Spirit of God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are no longer trapped, but free. We have freedom to live life in Christ with the Holy Spirit within us, unconstrained from fear of death. Life through the Spirit means we are no longer dead. We are alive in Christ. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are children and heirs of God. We live our lives by God's Spirit not by our own folly and understanding. Through Christ's death on our behalf and by the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we have been given new life, our best life, liberating us from the power of sin and death. 
reading the book of Ecclesiastes in light of the New Testament points us to Jesus in whom our lives find true meaning. Life does have meaning. And our lives are ones that Paul exhorts the reader to live for God. Just as the teacher instructed the reader to seek knowledge of God rather than rely on our own wisdom and then live your life accordingly, Paul tells the Romans that our new life is one that requires us to be active participants in. Paul says we are to put into effect the power of the Spirit if we are to expect eternal life. The Spirit conquers the flesh and our own desires and enables us to know God and his desire for our lives, setting us on a new path that bends to God's will. What is real freedom? It's not the fake promise of financial freedom from multi-level marketing campaigns. It's freedom from the burden of sin. It's not the number of likes on a social media post. It's the notification you get that your life has real meaning, that you are loved by God and offered the gift of an eternity with him, something that will last a lot longer than the minor adulation of a photo of you in a field of lavender. But please don't let that stop you creating memories of enjoying God's creation. In the final chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, the teacher addresses the reader and says this, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the stoop, strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed, when the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. And he continues on. He says, remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It may sound like the teacher hasn't changed his tune, but what he's imploring you to do is to not miss the most important opportunity you have in life, to put God first. Seize the moment, carpe diem, but do so with God as the primary focus of your life. Otherwise it will ultimately be meaningless for you will have missed the offer of real life that God gives you. In all the busyness and difficulty of life it's so easy to forget about God. Look again at your target circles of priorities all of those things are important, but if God isn't at the centre of your life, then they are ultimately meaningless. You can't take anything with you from this life to the next, except your relationship with God. A life lived fully in a relationship with God, that's your best life.